Hi there, welcome to the podcast. I'm Phoebe holdenson Kimura, a GP with a special interest in mental health and work with the Black Dog Institute's e-mental health in practice project, which develops and delivers educational material for health professionals. This podcast is a distillation of some of the important information from webinar 47, Supporting the Mental Health of Refugees. On the webinar, we had Gide Aldermuk, an intercultural therapy assistant with her own experience of being a refugee, and three GPs from Wonka, the World Organization of Family Doctors. We had with us Associate Professor Jill Benson, an Australian GP with a special interest in refugee health, Professor Christopher Dorick, who's a GP from Liverpool in England with a special interest in mental health, and Professor Maria van der Muschenberg, who's a GP from the Netherlands, who's the chair of the Wonka Special Interest Group on Migrant Care. Dr. Jan Orman was facilitating the webinar. In this presentation, we talked about the complex challenges that refugees face, the key issues for mental health care for refugees, and explored how taking a person-centred approach is key. We also discussed some useful resources to support healthcare practitioners in their care of migrants and refugees. We set the scene by asking Gide what it's like for refugees arriving in Australia. Is it a place where people feel welcome or do they tend to feel more anxiety? It's a mix of both of the things that you've mentioned. It's uh, like uh, being uh, welcomed uh, in a new society and at the same time like suffering and struggling with the new system. I always uh, describe their experiences as like the curve. So from the base is like the uncertainty while in transit country. And then afterwards, uh, moving on, uh, reaching to, to the safe shore of uh, the, the country that they are in. I can ca- call it like it's the honeymoon period. Yes. And then afterwards, it's the cultural clash that they have. It's yeah. the, the shock afterwards. And then the, you yeah. can see that the curve declines uh, the, towards the down um, because of all the struggles that they face, yeah. it's challenging due to uh, language barriers, uh, cultural differences, and uh, yeah, so many things like uh, the refugees faces uh, during their settlement, which like uh, they like, struggle a lot to solve them, really. Yeah, no, seriously, it's, it's very similar in the UK. People, there's a huge sense of relief when you arrive. You think your problems are all over, and they are in some ways. But then a whole lot of other problems which you hadn't even thought about present themselves. Yeah, and but I, I mean, as a result of that, or as a result of problems people have had getting here, do, do, do you think many refugees experience mental health problems? Um, uh, unfortunately, yes. So many of them like uh, having those problems. I can like. Uh, I have like some sort of energy. It's like uh, a refugee when they came here, it's like uh, they're like a bucket full of water with all the struggles that they went through, traumatic experiences that they went through in the past. And that bucket is like full of water. And then after arriving here, we are adding to that water it's by, by uh, struggles that they face, like they, the unemployment, uh, poverty, uh, language barriers. Yeah. And you yeah. can see that that bucket is just filled and starts falling yes. out because of all those difficulties. So yeah. uh, all those struggles reflecting on their lives, on their families and everyone around them yeah. is just yeah. huge, yeah. huge and somebody on the chat box is mentioning detention as well, which obviously that's going to exacerbate all those problems very considerably. Yeah. And then yes, yes. But obviously people from refugees. I mean, this is hugely complicated. People come from many different parts of the world. But from your just from your perspective, you know, from sort of Arab cultures, how does culture shape the presentation of of mental health problems? You know, what you perceive and also what sort of what sort of help help you, you you might be looking for 
Uh, I mean, that's a big question. So just a few, a few thoughts about that. Um, one thing that's very important to know about refugees, they come from uh, collectivist uh, societies. Yes. Those communities, like they built on social relation connections. It's very important for them to have those connections because if those connections that they drew from uh, their physical, psychological and mental uh, well-being. So to be to maintain that place in that cultural uh, context, you need to be strong. You don't have to be vulnerable. Yes. You don't you can't show those things. It's, yes. it's, it's not accepted, which is yes. like, that's another issue with them. It's like, well, um, if I'm having like a problem, it's a mental problem, it's considered a, as a vulnerable. Yes. You can't speak about this. You can't share it with other people. In some ways, you've got the community support. Oh, on, the other hand, on the other hand, it's actually worse because you, yeah, you drop out really. So, so, so who, who, who was somebody who was, you know, experiencing a mental health problem or emotional distress? Who, who would they typically turn to? for support, because I presume it's not necessarily a, a family doctor, is it? Um, most of them, like most of them shared their experiences, telling us that uh, they return to friends, uh, close yeah. friends, uh, that they can share their experiences with. And if not, there are those religious leaders in their community yes. that they can return to. They, they, they yeah. depend on their opinions. They look for, yeah. for advice from them because yeah. they feel that sharing those things with someone from different background is not right to do because they, they always say that, okay, why do I share those things that they don't understand the thing about? They don't understand yeah. my culture. So why I'm sharing these things with them? So that's another barrier that uh, many refugees struggle with. I think those cultural differences differences that gets talking about underline the need for uh, immigrant and refugee-specific support services, don't they? We then discuss the prevalence of PTSD in refugee populations. Given that many refugees coming to Australia have experienced trauma in their country of origin or en route, most of our webinar participants expected that the prevalence of PTSD in refugees would be upwards of 60%. However, the evidence shows us that the prevalence of PTSD in refugee populations is around 11%, so nowhere near what we had thought. Well, as, as many other people always I also thought, well, having experienced so many traumas during, uh, before you fly to another country, during your extremely uh, dangerous journey and being not received as, as welcomed as you would like, the PTSD would be higher. But fortunately, most refugees are very resilient. And that explains that only <laughs> 11%, and there's a huge difference in different uh, studies, but um, most say 11% suffers from uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Still, this is much higher than in the general population, as is the case with other mental health problems, depressions, um, even psychosis and substance use. For one part, sometimes uh, one refugee patient of mine, she expressed um, a feeling that others also experienced that they, she said to me, well, I don't think it's so strange that I'm suffering from a depression. I think this is just a healthy reaction to an unhealthy situation because mm -hmm. she was living in a terrible, uh, private uh, situation. So indeed, uh, yes. 
Maria, there are some interesting comments in the chat box as well about yeah. how much of the PTSD amongst refugees goes undiagnosed for a yeah. whole range of reasons. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's absolutely true. And there's also a debate on what exactly are the boundaries of post-traumatic uh, stress disorder or depression. And there's uh, usually a mix of that. And uh, we know, for instance, in children, that the the less the, 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 the many mental health problems in refugee children are underdiagnosed because people, as um, uh, also G told us, are very reluctant to seek a professional help. We will discuss this later. So indeed, um, it could be an underrepresentation. On the other hand, I think in, it's also true that many people have uh, are resilient and they are. Life is difficult for them, but they're not necessarily psychiatric patients. So what we're, we're saying, I think, Maria, is that, that people who become refugees, many of them don't develop PTSD because of their resilience. Exactly. And uh, on one hand, we know all that resilience is dependent on uh, personal pre-existence and, uh, characteristics and on circumstances. And uh, many of the refugees who are able to come to our countries, to Europe or to Australia, they belonged to the more rich and well-to-do people in their own country often, not all of them, but often. We have to realize that most of the refugees in the world are not coming to the rich countries. They are staying, forced to stay in the neighboring countries. So, for instance, in Lebanon, where... Uh, more than a quarter of the population at this moment exists of Syrian refugees. So people who are coming here often were used to have a bit of money, were strong, they were healthy. So that's what they call the healthy immigrant effect sometimes. But unfortunately, rapidly after coming to the country, they flee to people, um, health and mental health deteriorates. So that's um, an explanation for the high prevalence of mental health disorders. Of course, trauma, violence experiences are very important um, uh, uh, reasons for getting a PTSD, but maybe even more important is the bad situation many refugees end up in, in their host country. Many of them uh, suffer from a loss of status. They had a good um, uh, profession or good income and they have they lose that it's very difficult to get a job or, on your own level in the new country they are often lonely and lack of social support especially in those small communities as you talk about again um, and it's very difficult often to get acquainted and really cut friends in the new country um, because they are it's difficult for them to get a job or sometimes even to participate in uh, education. They are isolated socially. We have to be aware of the huge impact on health of discrimination. And we know, unfortunately, that nearly in all countries of the world, refugees suffer from racial, ethnic discrimination. I saw someone in the chat also talking about Australians expecting refugees to be grateful. Well, this makes you... Uh, like feeling that you are have to be humble and to be grateful so that's important and we'll talk about it later there are lots of barriers in accessing good health and mental health care and all of this causes chronic stress which in turn leads again to more mental health problems 
It must be so distressing to have all those high hopes for a better life and find that when you get there, it's it's much worse, but in different ways from what you'd been experiencing before. It's really challenging, isn't it? As a healthcare practitioner, it's one thing to be able to identify the distress in a person, but then it's another thing to discover that there are significant barriers to accessing the kind of care that they need. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so there are lots of structural barriers, and Jill will talk about uh, the barriers in place in Australia. People are not entitled to access healthcare or access mental health care. Um, they have often to pay for special services. For instance, in the Netherlands, you have to pay for attending a psychologist or, a, um, well, some courses. Even if you want and have the money to access healthcare, often people don't know how, how it works. For instance, as in Australia, in the Netherlands and in the UK, the general practitioner often uh, acts as a gatekeeper to the health system. So, but when you don't know that, then you probably will go to, to the hospital and they send you away. So you think, oh, I'm not entitled to something. Then again, also here, discrimination plays an important role. People not knowing the language often suffer from limited health literacy, not knowing how to access or understand health-related information. And last but not least, um, there is a lack of interpreter services. So how can you communicate with patients if you don't share the language? And there's unfortunately still a lack of cultural competent uh, healthcare professionals. You know, the, the point that you make about, about not seeking medical care because you don't know what the consequences of it are going to be. Um, it's interesting, I was talking to a taxi driver just recently, and he said that, that his main problem when he got here was the police, because he didn't realise the police were friendly. He thought that the police were, were um, people that he should be frightened of and that he was going to have to pay money to, uh, whether he did something wrong or not. He was he was from an African country and he said it took him a long time to get used to the idea that the police weren't out to get him and to um, take advantage of him. So cultural issues like that. Uh, uh, Jan, I think that can be the same for for, for, for general practitioners as well, because yeah. you know, I mean, if you do, uh, how do you know that this doctor isn't going to be checking on your your actual immigration status and reporting you mm -hmm. back to uh, you know to 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 to, to 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 the federal government to get you deported? I think there are, and, and I mean, Guide may have a view on that. I think there are huge issues of of, of basic trust, which are uh, to take a long time to work through. Guide, would you like to comment on that? Is that an issue? It is a big issue, actually, Jenny. Yes, so many people that, uh, suffer from this problem, the lack of trust uh, in, uh, in the health system, whether they know that, uh, can I share those, those information? Would I be in danger if I talk about these things? So they rather keep those things for themselves, uh, struggling with them, and rather than sharing them with other people or to trying to find out such solutions for them. It's always a problem in there. It's another version of you don't say anything because you're afraid the authorities will take your kids away from you, isn't it? And that applies in various cultures in Australia beyond the refugee um, culture. Jill, I wonder if you can we can get um, down and dirty around the issues that are specific to refugees in Australia. Will you give us a little little bit of background on things like language and and um, access? 
So for those of you who are Australian, you know that we're a very multicultural country. So 20% of us speak a language other than English at home. And a small proportion of us, up to 5%, say that they don't speak English well at all. If you come as a refugee, uh, there's a much smaller chance that you speak English. If you're a migrant who's chosen to come to Australia for education reasons or work reasons or family reasons, you have a chance to learn English, have your, uh, your qualifications recognised, to plan, to say goodbye to people. But if you come as a refugee, you've come suddenly in the middle of the night um, and you don't have a chance to learn English. So it's actually quite rare that people do speak English. And of the refugees who come, a lot of them have had come from such disrupted countries that even their general education has been disrupted. When people arrive, if they come as United Nations High Commission for Refugees, refugee, they get 510 hours of English lessons. That's not a lot when you think of how difficult English is, but they're the only ones who get that. If you come on any other visa, you don't get that 510 hours. If you're an asylum seeker, if you're on a spousal visa, if you're on a family reunion visa, well, some of them, um, you don't get that 510 hours. What we know is that a lot of people have a little bit of English. And they're very proud of that English, so they'll come and they'll talk in that English. But that's not enough to run a consultation. Just being able to say your name and address and what your problem is isn't enough. And we all know that when we're stressed, words disappear, even if English is our own la only language. Very much so with refugees. So Maria's Somalia patient reminded me of a Somalian nurse I saw who had absolutely excellent English, never needed an interpreter until she decided after a year and a half to tell me her refugee story, which she'd never told me before that. And she brought in an interpreter with her. She booked the interpreter. And I said, oh, we don't need an interpreter. And she said, yes, we do, Dr. Jill. Because as she told the story, her English disappeared. And by the end of it, we were both weeping and she was speaking Somalian and I was not, I was listening to the interpreter. Australia has the best refu uh, in interpreting and translating service in the world. For doctors, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not using it enough, especially we GPs. We can get a, 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 an interpreter on the phone. We can get them face to face very, very easily, but we're not using them. Can I encourage you all to use them? Unfortunately, it's only for GPs. We also discussed how outside of the primary care setting, there are different services that also provide access to interpreter services. There are some PHNs, employment programs, hospitals or counselling services that will have their own access to interpreters. So it's best to find out what's available specifically for your patients in your area. Jill then briefly shared with us the different medical services that different classes of visa holders can access. It's very, very complicated. So if you come under the humanitarian program, you do have full Medicare eligibility. You get everything, subsidised medication, disability services, chronic disease management plans, everything that anyone else gets 
who's on Medicare. But for all of those other visas, you don't get the subsidised medication, you don't get the disability services, you don't get any of those things. You just get Medicare. So you, if you, unless you're bulk billed, you don't get anything else. The health, you, there's no healthcare cards. So if you are on a sponsored visa or a spousal visa, you don't get anything. So what about access to health services? Do you, is there any more we need to know? Um, well, yes. So, so every state has a torture and trauma service. It's called all different things, Foundation House, the Phoenix Centre, Fast Stars, Starts, variety of different things. So for those of you who aren't familiar with those, I suggest you get familiar with them because they're amazing. Every state is different about what sort of refugee health service they have. It's funded differently. It's housed differently. Um, most of them have GPs, most of them have psychologists, but they have a variety of other different visiting specialists, allied health professionals. They often have a variety of other different funding streams. So I worked for 15 years at the Refugee Health Service in South Australia, which is part of the state health service. So they're all different. There are some states where there are refugee health nurses that do outreach visits. So in New South Wales, that's the main model in, in Victoria. And they go out to support community GPs. And some of the primary health networks also have nurses who go out. Um, so every state, though, has general practices that have a higher caseload. And there's, there's lots of great resources. So there's the, the Refugee Health Network of Australia and the Victorian Refugee Health Network have fantastic websites that have heaps and heaps of resources um, and there are competency standards that were developed out of the, um, the ACT that have now been looked at by the World Health Organization to develop um, competency standards uh, for health professionals about working in a culturally competent manner. But and it was interesting listening to Maria's um, presentation because one of the things that I think is really important is that we have we talk about trauma-informed care I think it's important for us to think about grief-informed care because refugees have left so much behind and asylum seekers have left so much behind and they're grieving so much. One patient said to me, even the sun comes up in the wrong place, um, which is a very deep grief, I think. So what about in Australia and what refugees really do experience in seeking mental health care? Uh, yes, so many refugees like share their experience and they talk, talked about uh, what they went through after arriving. They uh, told us that uh, uh, seeing a GP, uh, getting the accurate information from them was one of the main thing for them, helping them navigate the system, helping them build some sort of understanding to what's going on. Because in the middle of all the things that's been happening with them, and the mix of information that they get from the community that they live in, they don't know which one is right or wrong. So getting those information from resources like their GPs like was, was one of the main uh, successful points in their lives. They said, okay, I can't depend on those information. They are accurate. They came from my GP. And they helped them a lot, like understand the community or the society that they live in. Uh, this relation and the trust that they had with their GPs and even with their mental health, they, like when they reach out for those uh, services, they say they, they help, 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 uh, help us like uh, understand what's going on with the, 
with the society, help us like they clarify things for us, which is very important. So when a refugee goes to their GP, um, what does the GP do? What's the most effective thing the GP can do to help them with the mental health problems that they, they present with? Uh, maybe uh, first and foremost is like understanding the uh, cultural background of those people. That's maybe one of the main things like the GPs can do with their patients, like the coming from a refugee background, um, respecting and honor their experiences, um, discuss their concerns. Like it's very important, like to be to feel that we are heard, that the, 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 the GP are like hearing our concerns and trying to address them. That's very important. And a report built over like uh, uh, understanding and trust. And a very important part is offer, offering them a culturally tailored uh, uh, treatment, something suitable for their culture rather than offering them something in general that's maybe other people, but doesn't suit those people from that cultural background. So listening to their individual needs that have been informed by their cultural background. Exactly right, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Maria, would you like to expand on how best we can provide this culturally competent patient, person-centred care? Well, yes. Well, I can reflect on what Jeet is talking, and I'm sure many of the participants are very competent, uh, culturally competent uh, professionals already. I saw such a lot of interesting uh, things in the chat. But I think, in, indeed, as Jeet said, the key is that we build trust, and respect the person and its background. And therefore, it's important that we see and hear um, the person and their life. So uh, start with something um, to build a little bit a good relation. I often see my patients, they come in very stressed because they don't know me, they don't know the system. And uh, although many of us have been uh, trained in this uh, professional distance, um, I think it's very important to show a little bit of your own as well. So just you can start with a personal remark on, well, the weather or on the, the, the children or on um, something that just happened and or say something, oh, I'm so sorry, I was terribly stressed today or something. You, there are things you can do to just make contact very important if it's a person who you see for the first time to do an intake. Just ask a bit more than only the reason for a counter. So get to know the person, with whom is he living here? Are there still children in the country of origin? And um, uh, does he have any contact? Um, it's always good to start then with more practical issues and of course be aware of all the shameful or taboo um, issues don't probe, don't push, but uh, just ask. And then you, my experience, people are very willing to tell about their own lives and their own experiences. And then you can start to get this level conversation between experts. The person, he or herself, is the expert on her life. And especially as this life is quite different from your life as a professional, it's important to to acknowledge that and to really show an interest in it. Another important thing is, as already discussed, that we have to be aware that regulations and procedures 
are often not known to people. So explain them. Like Jeet said, the most important thing is that you provide information um, and that you check if what you are talking about or what you are explaining or what you are advising is actual, understood and doable. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, uh, well, we all know patients are very reluctant to say, well, I don't know, I don't understand, like we ourselves are in a meeting with people we are a little bit shy of. So just ask them to teach back, to tell back to you what you have discussed so you are sure what they know. One of those simple things that people don't necessarily understand is about confidentiality, as Brenda Brenda remarks in the chat box. Yeah, you know, we need to be very explicit about things that might seem to be obvious to us, don't we? So do we need to know a lot, a lot of specific detail about the, the people that we deal with in terms of the cultures that they come from? Can I just ask Jill whether that's true of Indigenous people? In your work with, with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, is it really important from the go-get that people know about cultural things? Well... The, of course, the right answer is yes, and but the, the but we don't know. No matter how long I've been working with Aboriginal people and with refugees for over twenty years, and I couldn't honestly say I know lots of stuff. It's a learning process, as as Maria's cartoon said. The patient is the expert on their life; they're the expert on their culture. We need to ask them. We need to come with curiosity and humility and a sense of not knowing because they are the expert. I particularly like the cultural awareness tool, which was developed from Arthur Kleinman's work and then redeveloped by the Transcultural Mental Health Unit in Western Australia. And I think that's in the resource list um, as a way, just a, a quick way of asking somebody about what they think the problem is, what they think the solution might be. Um, because we can't know how different their understanding of what's going on is. Mm -hmm. And as Maria says on this slide, they may well have a totally different explanation for their, their symptoms and difficulties from anything that you've ever thought of before. Yes. And for those yes. cultures where there's not a culture of mental health, where they don't know what a GP is, they don't know what a psychologist is, they have no words in their language for mental health issues, Mental health issues are, are presented as physical problems, as spiritual problems, um, as social problems, but not ever as psychological problems. For mm -hmm. those people, they're not going to come and say, I'm depressed, I'm anxious. They're going to say, I've got a stomachache. They're going to say, I'm too poor. They're going to talk about religious ways of understanding what's happening to them. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to know that unless we ask. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's ask, not assume, isn't it? I want to talk a little bit about somatic presentations because I know that Chris is really interested in um, the way mental health problems pre present as somatic presentations. Chris, have you got a few words to say about that? 
Just a, a brief story, really. You mentioned a taxi driver. As a taxi driver, I, 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 I've been talking with um, who, who has all sorts of somatic problems, mostly gastrointestinal, a lot of worries. And I, I, I was getting quite stuck. So, but I, I noticed, I noticed his name. So I just, I just asked him where, where his name was from. And then it turns out he, he's from northern Iraq. And uh, his family, he himself and his family have had the most awful set of traumas, still having them at home and, and over here. And, and just, just by me asking him about that, uh, the, the whole conversation opened up. It, it, rather than it becoming more difficult, it became much easier because I was listening and, and I was just seeing this big, this big picture within which some physical problems were being presenting. And it, 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 so it's actually been much. It, since then, our conversations have been much, much more real and and um, uh, yeah, more straightforward for both of us, really. And is, is his back pain getting better? Uh, uh, we're working on that, but but also he's also able to, to to talk about some of his psychological issues in a way that he wasn't able before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. So, what else do we need to do? We need to do a physical examination if we happen to be a GP when people present with somatic symptoms. Why do we need to do a physical examination when we know it's psychological in origin? Because always, I think people feel this in their body, and only when you can really reassure them that their heart, which they feel is good, then you can go to the next step that probably it's not a, a physical disease, but uh, it's an, an expression of their chronic stress. So it's, I think it's vital to do that always. I think this applies to anyone who's presenting Absolutely. with a somatic presentation, doesn't it? I just want to say a few words about some of the resources that you might useful, find useful in working with these patients. When language and literacy are not an issue, that you might like to look at the federal government's portal to all the Australian-made evidence-based online resources, everything from from uh, apps for, for relaxation to CBT treatment programs. But again, Again, that's, that's going to be limited by the language skills of the people that you're seeing. It might be more useful for you as a practitioner, if you're not a, a psychologist or a mental health professional, to learn some simple psychological skills that you can teach the people that you see. And we at Black Dog have just made a series of videos. There are 12 little videos that only take you about three minutes to watch, teaching you how to do some things that might be useful for both you and your patients. So that's something worth looking at. If you forget, it's the Working Towards Wellbeing videos from Black Dog Institute. There is also the point about the emotional impact of seeing people who are so um, uh, traumatised on us as health professionals. Jill might have a few words to say to us about that. So I think um, unless we're giving out of our fullness and unless we're looking after ourselves properly, we know that we know that we're not going to be as useful as we can be for our patients or our, our customers, whatever you call them. So we need to make sure that we're looking after ourselves. And that's personally, it's professionally, it's socially. Um, so we need to find people we can learn from. We need to know what our limits are. We need to not judge ourselves or blame ourselves when things don't go the way we want. 
We need to make sure that we're getting proper support and that we're, we're doing that work, non-work balance. Sometimes people call it work-life balance, but, you know, I've been a GP for a really long time. Um, work is incredibly important to me and a very big part of my life. So to me, it's the work, non-work balance. We need to always do our best, but then when we've done our best and it doesn't work out, we need to forgive ourselves and settle ourselves, do some mindfulness. Um, we know, need to know when to refer, who to refer to, and we need to look after each other. I think it's really important that we're looking out for each other. We should always be working in a team. I think the thing that we're most at risk of is burnout because we're pushing ourselves, but we're also at risk of vicarious trauma where we, from listening to the trauma stories of the people we work with, we can start to internalise some of those symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's a very difficult thing to work with. So if you're suffering from burnout or from vicarious trauma, you need to get help straight away and you need to make sure that you're stopping what you're doing so that you can get the proper help. But there's this other thing called vicarious resilience, where, as Maria says, from listening to the resilience stories, we learn more about ourselves. We need learn more about the world. We can see the things that are um, uh, the, the common humanity that, that we find in each other. So I know that I, I laugh a lot, but I also cry a lot when I'm with refugee patients and I make no apologies for that. I love stories. I love hearing stories. I love the relationships that we can build, those listening relationships. One of my refugee patients said, you must tell all doctors to be friendly. That's, they don't teach you that in medical school. So we need to have that caring and that love that comes with our, our um, doctoring or our being a psychologist or a pharmacist or a physiotherapist, whatever we are. And I just want to draw your attention to a few online resources that you may or may not be aware of that were developed specifically for health professionals like us. Like us. There's an app called TEN, the Essential Network from Black Dog Institute that was developed to help us all through COVID. Looks like we're going to need it for some time to come. It's got a whole lot of resources on it, uh, that within it and that, that it links to that help, help are designed to help health professionals of all sorts sorts in their their quest for survival the hand-in-hand -hand peer support program is something that's worth knowing about too it allows health professionals across australia and new zealand to get um uh, diagnostic triage if they need it, but also to get peer support in the form of one-to-one -one peer support or, or group peer support. I run a little group of GPs that I absolutely adore talking to on a fortnightly basis, and I think I get as much out of it as they do, and that's a free program run by volunteers. And the, down the bottom, you'll see that the eMental Health in Practice Project, that's us, has a community of practice with 5,000 members online in the community at the moment and we talk about all things mental health and we we discuss case studies for example so there's a lot of of a vigorous chat going on in our community of practice if you want to learn more about using online resources, please go to the MPRAC page of the Black Dog Institute website where you will find lots of learning opportunities. 
I hope you've enjoyed learning about supporting the mental health of refugees with us. A resource sheet containing all the resources and services that we've discussed and more are available via the Black Dog Institute website under the eMental Health page and can be accessed through this specific webinar. Thanks so much for listening today. Until next time. Mm-hmm.